Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Dazzle Painting in World War I the 1870 Jules Verne novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, begins with a submarine attack on a naval vessel in the Atlantic Ocean. The terror of the passengers and crewmen is palpable. In the vast dark ocean, there is nowhere to hide from the seemingly impervious submarine, which is initially believed to be a sea monster. This may have seemed like science fiction in the 19th century, but a little over 40 years after 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was published, the German U-boat prowling in the Atlantic would become the terror of naval and merchant shipping. This time, however, it would not be one submarine terrorizing the Atlantic. It would be dozens of submarines sending millions of tons of Allied shipping to the bottom of the ocean. The American Civil War had marked the beginning of the age of submarines, and in the decades that followed, the great powers of Europe paid keen attention to the development of their own submarines. Unlike the submarines of the American Civil War, however, the submarines of the early 20th century had a wider range of operation and a more advanced complement of weapons. By World War I, Germany had taken the lead in submarine warfare. By the later years of the war, it was clear to all that World War I was a war of production. Whoever could feed their populations and soldiers, make the most weapons, and marshal the most resources would win the war. Surrounded by enemies on land and desperate to break the transatlantic trade and supply lines of the Allied powers, throughout the war Germany would use its submarines to hunt down and destroy Allied shipping and naval vessels. With this German U-boat campaign threatening Allied supplies and production capabilities, it soon became obvious that something had to be done to counter the U-boat threat, or the Allies would lose the war. Initially, the convoy system was one solution to this problem. Instead of cargo or transport ships making their own way across the Atlantic, where they made incredibly vulnerable prey for German U-boats stalking the shipping channels, in the convoy system, vessels traveled together under the escort of warships. This system made cargo and transport ships less attractive to German U-boats because it entailed the risk of contact with enemy warships. In order to fire its torpedoes, a U-boat had to surface. On the surface, it became a vulnerable target if a warship sighted it. Over time, the German Navy would incur many sub-losses due to the warships escorting the convoys. In addition to the convoy system, the British also used Q-ships. Q-ships were designed to look like vulnerable cargo ships, but upon attack, panels would drop revealing deck guns. Q-ships were fairly effective and scored hits on German U-boats that surfaced. But still a question remained. What else could be done to protect ships from U-boats? The answer was camouflage, but it would take a while for this to be realized. In August of 1914, German troops marched to war wearing gray uniforms that offered definite advantages in terms of concealment. In contrast, French troops in the early battles of the war fought in red pants, blue jackets, and with soft caps on their heads. Prior to the war, French leadership had considered a change to a more drab uniform color, referred to as Horizon Blue, but this effort failed because it was believed that the troops would be proud of their brilliantly colored dress. This pride would then contribute to the elan of the forces and help them fight better. 
As the initial battles proved, however, bright red pants were not an advantage, and by 1915 all French troops had been issued drab blue-gray uniforms and steel Adrian helmets. While it took a while to adapt uniforms, as early as 1914, a French painter, serving in an artillery unit, came up with the idea of concealing an artillery piece by painting it in abstract, angular, black and white stripes. This made the gun more difficult to see, and there is a story that Pablo Picasso, one of the great abstract artists of the day, saw one of these camouflage guns passing through the streets of Paris. As it rolled by, he credited the avant-garde art movement of the day with being the inspiration behind such an abstract painting scheme. He reportedly exclaimed, It is we who have created it. Picasso would play no role in creating the camouflage schemes of World War I, but many of the artists that would work in this field were indeed greatly influenced by Picasso and his fellow modernists. Camouflage and concealment were to be paramount in the Great War, and as land forces adopted different methods of concealment, navies got involved as well. At the outbreak of war, many navies painted their fleets a drab gray, as this color was recognized as reducing visibility. For the Royal Navy, this applied mainly to battleships and cruisers, with destroyers and flotilla leaders remaining the traditional black. By 1915, though, these ships were painted gray as well. Merchant vessels appropriated for wartime service were also painted gray. Other nations followed suit. Yet even with this effort, the dreaded German U-boat remained the greatest danger of the seas. Under pressure to respond to this threat, the British Admiralty felt a pressing need to understand the principles of visibility and to figure out how to reduce the visibility of its ships through some sort of camouflage. Making a ship completely invisible was clearly not an option. There was no way to make a battleship or a destroyer disappear, but it was possible to create target confusion. The solution was dazzle painting, or razzle-dazzle, as it was later known to the Americans. Dazzle painting was a brand new painting scheme for ships that involved a pretty significant departure from the drab gray scheme of most ships. Norman Wilkinson is generally credited with being the father of dazzle painting. Born in 1878, Wilkinson was a British artist who served in the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve during World War I. Wilkinson spent the early part of the war attached to sub-patrols in the Dardanelles, Gallipoli, and Gibraltar. He later spent time aboard a minesweeper. In 1917, as German U-boat successes were mounting, Wilkinson began to think of a way to protect merchant and naval vessels. He understood that simply camouflaging a ship to make it disappear into its surroundings would not work. Soon he had a brilliant idea. Describing the moment in which he came up with the concept of dazzle painting, he later wrote, I suddenly got the idea that since it was impossible to paint a ship so that she could not be seen by a submarine, the extreme opposite was the answer. In other words, to paint her not for low visibility, but in such a way as to break up her form and thus confuse a submarine officer as to the course on which she was heading. As an anti-sub tactic, Wilkinson's concept of dazzle painting was meant to distort a ship's shape, size, symmetry, and speed, to present the viewer with too much to see, too much to puzzle out. The new paint scheme was characterized by bold geometric patterns in bright, heavily contrasting colors intended to achieve pronounced distortion or falsification of perspective. For the U-boat commander, this would make attacking a dazzle-painted ship far more difficult. 
Like a hunter or a quarterback in American football, the U-boat commander led his target, firing his torpedo where he anticipated the ship would be, not necessarily firing at where the target was in that particular moment. If a U-boat commander could not determine the speed and direction of a ship, or had to waste valuable time figuring out this information, the targeted ship would have more of a chance to evade and escape the U-boat. Wilkinson's idea soon came to the attention of the British Admiralty. He was then assigned to a camouflage unit housed in the basement of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. Working with artists and model makers, Wilkinson created a variety of dazzle schemes, applied them to models, tested the models, and then prepared scale designs for the artists who would be responsible for painting the designs on ships in dockyards. A famous painting by English artist Edward Wadsworth, entitled Dazzle Ships in Dry Dock at Liverpool, features a naval vessel painted in dramatic dazzle style in a dockyard. Initially, Wilkinson was allowed to paint 50 ships in this new scheme. After a period of testing, the British Admiralty determined that it was indeed difficult to determine the course, heading, and speed of a ship in dazzle scheme. By early summer of 1918, 2,000 British ships had adopted the scheme, which was becoming very popular with the public. The United States soon asked to borrow Wilkinson so that he could teach the U.S. Navy how to camouflage its ships. Wilkinson spent about a month in the United States, and by the end of the war, 1,200 American naval vessels had been painted in the dazzle scheme. After the war, in determining the ultimate effectiveness of dazzle painting, the Royal Navy and the American Navy reported mixed results. Those in favor of dazzle painting found plenty to support their argument, but those against it also found some support for their cause. In general, however, most of the studies concluded that the greatest benefit of dazzle painting was probably an intangible one, the morale of sailors. Sailors, dreading attack by U-boat, reported that they actually felt safer on a vessel painted in dazzle scheme. Dazzle painting did not make vessels impervious, but to a great extent it helped the morale of the crews. And crews were not the only ones who had favorable views of dazzle painting. The paint scheme was very popular with the general public as well. Today, in looking at photographs of World War I vessels painted in dazzle scheme, the different bands of color look black and white. In reality, many of the vessels were brightly colored. This might have had something to do with the popularity of the scheme with the general public. According to author David Rothenberg, the dazzle ships encouraged the public to feel that the naval war was not cold, merciless, and gray, but beautiful and spectacular, a heightened aesthetic experience in which artists and scientists had together exploded the principles of nature into a grand experiment of perception and illusion. The ships were floating experiments in science and art, and they stood in stark contrast to the gray, muddy stalemate on land in Europe. It was a welcome relief to many. After the war, many ships were repainted, and dazzle painting was generally abandoned. World War II would see the return of dazzle painting, but it would not be as widespread as in World War I. Dazzle painting remains an interesting chapter in World War I history. Even though its success was much disputed in reports after the war, for many sailors on the Atlantic and to the general public back home, it seemed a great solution to the problem of predatory German U-boats. The American writer Gertrude Stein believed that the spirit of an age shaped all things, and that the changing social dimensions of life, art, and culture were manifested in the way World War I was fought.
Like Picasso commenting on the camouflage French cannons, she identified World War I as a modernist or cubist war. Cubism was an art philosophy that focused on geometric shapes, multiple perspectives and surfaces, and on time deconstructed. In many ways, after the war, dazzle schemes became a symbol of the new, modern world. By the 1920s, many structures and objects had adapted dazzle schemes. Some nightclubs featured dazzle schemes, primarily to give a sense of speed, modernity, and the breaking of tradition. There was also a women's bathing suit trend in the 1920s that used printed dazzle schemes on suits to make a modern fashion statement and also conceal the shape of the wearer. Whether World War I was a Cubist-inspired war or not, dazzle painting seemed to fit perfectly into this vision of modernity. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.